So what Daryl did is he he took uh, he he took people and showed them a list of about forty words, and he gave them a pop quiz on on these words to try to see how many they could remember out of the forty. After they took the pop quiz, he gave them some training on how to remember these words. People who got the training remembered more of the words than those who didn't get the training, even though the training happened after they took the test. It's as if they were able to see into the future, just slightly into the future to when they would be getting the training. So the training had an impact, and it shouldn't have. This is something we call presentiment, where people, they're not purposely trying to get information from the future. But something about us, unconsciously, we're able to get information about things we haven't seen yet. Welcome to What the Fuck Just Happened. I'm your host, Liz Enton. If you listen to the intro, you know my story. If not, here's a brief summary. I'm a science skeptic, and when my dad died, I took a shot in the dark and decided to investigate if there was any possible evidence of an afterlife. I assumed that was as realistic as Santa Claus, but I was desperate. However, I was so blown away by what I discovered that I wrote a book and launched this podcast. In this podcast, I will be talking to some fairly normal people about some really weird shit. I speak with everyone from psychic mediums and afterlife researchers to ordinary people who've had some inexplicable experiences. So come, listen, there's no need to draw any final conclusions. Keep an open mind and wonder what the fuck just happened? Hi, everyone. So today I have a guest, John Kruth, and he was someone I took classes with, or took classes from, I should say, very early on in my research. And he had some amazing, very life transformative classes, and I don't want to introduce him beyond this because I think he should take over and introduce himself. <laughs> it's good. It's good to see you, Liz. It's always nice to have have an opportunity to spend some time with you. So, yeah, I'm, I'm the executive director of the Ryan Research Center in Durham, North Carolina, and I know you know about the Ryan Research Center because you've been coming to our meetings and to, taking classes for a while. Um, but for people who don't know, the Ryan's been around since the 1930s. It was originally part of Duke University. It was the Duke Parapsychology Lab uh, that started in 1935 by a man named J.B. Ryan. And they were doing research on this brand new field of study called parapsychology. Parapsychology at that time, it was, there were people who were studying psychical research at that time over in the UK, and there were some people in the United States who were looking at it related to mediumship and life after death and trying to determine, hey, can we communicate with spirits? But J.B. Ryan took things in a slightly different direction. 
he decided to explore whether there were other ways that people might be able to get information either from each other or from the world around them, looking at things like telepathy, mind-to-mind communication, whether it was possible for people to get information about objects from a distance or things that were hidden, which would be a form what he called clairvoyance. They now call it remote viewing in a lot of circles. Also, JB was looking at whether people could get information through time, which we call precognition. These three things, telepathy, mind-mind communication, clairvoyance, getting information about objects that are hidden, and precognition, precognition are what we call ESP or extrasensory perception. So JB Ryan was looking at these, trying to say, are these real? And can we really determine if people can get information without using the traditional five senses? He found a lot of evidence to support the fact that people could get information using what he called ESP cards at that time. These cards with symbols on them, like a circle, wavy lines, squares, crosses. These were regularly used in experiments to see if people could get, could demonstrate ESP. Well, over a period of about 40, 30 years working at Duke University, he gathered enough evidence to say these phenomena actually exist. People can get information from other people, and they can get information outside of our normal ideas of what time are. This was a real revelation for the science world. We're talking about about getting information outside of our physical, what we consider the limits of our physical capacity. Well, does this mean that there's things about the physical world we don't understand? Well, of course it does. And we have to explore those. But it also opens up the possibility that there are things that are beyond not only what we understand, but actually beyond the physical world. And this is where JB started. Well, after about 30 years at Duke University, JB took a step away from the university. He was he was reached mandatory retirement age and founded a nonprofit. And it eventually has changed into the Rhine Research Center. And we're still doing similar research today. And we're expanding on the research that JB did in the 1930s. So what is your story? What got you into parapsychology in the first place. Boy, that's a long story, Liz, but I'll try to make it really short. (laughs) Okay. I I told you I grew up up with twins in my family, but from the time I was very small, I was in an environment in my family that was very accepting of the fact that we all have connections together uh, and that the world around us can be influenced by our thoughts, our focus, and our desires. Uh, My mother did what we would consider energy healing. Now, from her cultural background, her mother did it. Her mother did it. Her mother did it. It was an ancestral thing. And it wasn't until much later in my life I found out that also my father had a tradition of healing in his family as well. But these things were natural when I was very small. Uh, I learned about meditation. When, and I learned about um, visualization techniques. I'm not exaggerating. When I was three and four years old, we were using these within my family when we were this old. And when I started to get a little older and I got to be a teenager, I'm doing sports and things, and I would do visualizations before I went to a sporting event. And I remember someone asking me one time, hey, what are you doing there? And I explained to them, I was doing this visualization of what I was expecting to see in the game we were going to. 
And they're like, what? They didn't understand. And they all thought I was weird. And I was like, this isn't weird. This is just how you do it. You know, this is what I've been doing my whole life. It was nothing unusual. And I started to realize as I started to speak about some of the things that were natural in my family, people didn't understand it. My father was also an engineer. And so as I was trying to figure out how can I explain this to people, I thought, well, maybe if I learn about science, I can take that science and apply it here and make people understand it in a way that the in their language. So that's what got me interested in studying science and these phenomena. And it wasn't until I was in my 20s when I found out that there was actually a place called the Rhine Research Center that they did this and they let people study this in a laboratory environment. And I always thought, wow, I'd like to work there someday. Well, life happened. And over a period of time, I did lots of different things and went into a lot of different types of job, had a 20-year career in computers. And then I was able to actually come back to what I always wanted to do from when I was very young. And so I really feel like I'm living a dream here, being able to work within the field of parapsychology and working at the Ryan Research Center. I never thought I'd be the boss <laughs> and the executive director, but here I am and uh, I'm enjoying the, I really enjoy this work dramatically. The class I took with you first, though I've taken many since then, was eight studies in parapsychology. And I know that was a bit of the history and some of the studies that J.B. Ryan did. And do you want to share? I mean, I found those life-changing and how I viewed the world. Do you want to share two from that class? Sure, sure. I can talk about a few. It, that was a really fun class to teach because what we did each week is we took one significant study that really changed the, our perception of the world. And we explored it in detail. Each week, we read the original article, we explored the context of it, and what the impacts of these different studies were. But we also looked at the possible objections to the studies. So it gave us a critical view of each of these. One of the first ones we talked about was related to the ESP card that I was telling you about earlier. I'm just going to jump in here and say those are called Zener cards. Some people call them Zener cards. Uh, I typically call them ESP cards, but one way or the other, they're, they're fine. These cards, so what, we're, what they were doing was trying to determine, is there any limit to extrasensory perception, to telepathy, to clairvoyance? For example, if I'm sitting across the table from someone and doing it, well, there's always a possibility they might be able to see me and get cues from me on which card I'm holding up, or even if they have some really tricky way of peeking at the cards. But we wanted, to, we wanted to try to determine, is there any limit to a distance? If we put someone in another room, or in this case, what they did is they did a study where they had uh, someone who was trying to guess the cards, and they were in another building on campus at Duke University. This was done with um, Gaither Pratt and a man named Hubert Pierce. And Hubert Pierce was the person who was trying to guess the cards. Gaither Pratt was the experimenter. Pierce went into the library across the across the uh, quad at Duke University, and he got he was in a different room than Gaither, about a hundred yards away. And they found he was still able to guess the cards. They synchronized their watches and tried to set it up. And every five five or every minute, Gaither would flip another card, and Pierce would write down what he thought it was. This one, they did a number of trials this way and found he was still able to guess these cards, not at 100% accuracy, but much better than chance. So they said, well, 
if we can do it from 100 yards, let's move him down the other end of the building. And they moved him even, even further away. It was closer to 500 yards away and did the same experiments. And they also found that it continued to work. They continu- he continued to demonstrate telepathy and clairvoyance from that distance. So this told us that, hey, there doesn't seem to be a distance limitation related to ESP. That's really phenomenal because, you know, we always think about a signal, sending a signal from the person who's looking at the card to the person who's receiving the information and guessing what it is. But signals deteriorate with distance. This didn't seem to deteriorate. All other signals that we know about, electrical signals, radio signals, and any other signal deteriorates as we get further and further away. But this didn't. So it didn't seem to be acting like other physical commodities that we typically measure. This was really remarkable because it does indicate there might might be something outside of our physical world that's in operation here. I'm going to add just one thing about the cards because you mentioned Hubert Pierce and Gaither Pratt. Pratt, And they're called the Pierce-Pratt studies. And I'm just going to mention something that we call the white crow phenomenon in studying this about mediumship. All you need is one white crow to prove that all crows are not black, meaning that just because... Most of us cannot do telepathy with these ESP, Zener cards, does not mean these abilities don't exist. That was a mistake I made early on, was my friends and I, when we were kids, would try to do experiments like this sometimes that we could never do them. Most people, for whatever reason, and if you have any insight into why, most of us cannot do this to any significant amount. However, Pierce and Pratt could. I interpret this to mean these abilities do exist, but very, very few people can do them significantly beyond the odds of chance most of the time. Yeah, when I when I think of that, we always talk about whether ESP is something that's kind of a, a natural ability, a gift that people have, or whether it can be learned and trained, and whether people will do well on ESP tests. Because, you know, some people might might have naturally kind of, they might have these things happening in their normal life, but you put them in a laboratory in a testing situation, and all of a sudden they get nervous, they get anxious, and they don't do as well in testing situations. But we do talk about how it seems from all of our studies that everyone utilizes these types of abilities, ESP and clairvoyance and precognition, to some extent in their normal lives. But like any ability, any practice that we have, if you, if you, some people have a very natural inclination towards them. Like if you think about sports, some people are really good at sports just naturally and they don't have to practice a lot. And then you get other people who aren't so good, but they need to, but if they practice a whole lot, they can get good at it. But then you get people who are really good at it naturally and they practice a lot and you have high performers in athletics. It's the same way with these with these sorts of psi abilities, we call them. It's the same way. People who have natural abilities and who pay attention to them, practice them, and try to learn more about what they are will start to perform better. And then the question is, well, are they going to be able to do it in a laboratory? That's a whole different story because you have to have a laboratory environment that's comfortable for people to do it as well. And also, one thing I know we've all discussed in some of our discussion groups with the Rhine is we don't know how much all of us are using our ESP abilities every day. We might just be making these constant little decisions that we're 
using ESP. There isn't evidence of this. It's just getting a little more into philosophy. We just make all these casual decisions like, oh, I'm going to go to this gym class instead of this one. I'm going to go to pick up groceries on the way home, but I was originally planning to that morning. And who knows? For all we know, these are ESP downloads that are keeping us safe from something or directing us in some way. And to what extent? I mean, it may be every single decision we make, maybe 2% of the decisions we make. That's getting again into philosophy, but it's interesting to think about. We just don't know. Well, and Liz, that actually brings us to another study. (laughs) Because what what you're talking about is that it happens unconsciously, that it might occur and we're not even aware that it's going on. Well, there were some studies done in 2011. They were published by a man named Daryl Bem. Daryl Bem was a a social psychologist. He had done a great deal of research in the field of psychology and and designed many experiments. He was very skeptical. And later in his career, he learned about parapsychology experiments, and he was invited to uh, observe some as a skeptic to try to make the experiments better and show where we might be making mistakes. After he saw the evidence and the data, he realized that there was something happening that we should pay attention to. And so he started designing his own studies related to his research in social psychology. So what Daryl did, he took people and showed them a list of about 40 words, and he gave them a pop quiz. On, on these words to try to see how many they could remember out of the 40. After they took the pop quiz, he gave them some training on how to remember these words. People who got the training remembered more of the words than those who didn't get the training, even though the training happened after they took the test. It's as if they were able to see into the future, just slightly into the future to when they would be getting the training. So the training had an impact and it shouldn't have. This is something we call pre-sentiment, where people, they're not purposely trying to get information from the future, but something about us unconsciously, we're able to get information about things we haven't seen yet. Now, this was really interesting. This was just one of the little one of the studies he did. But how could this be useful to people? Why would this be valuable? Well, imagine that prehistoric man is walking through a jungle or a forest, and one of them has a better sense, a better presentiment of what's coming next, and is able to say, I'm going to go left instead of going right. And by going right, there's a uh, wild animal there, it's going to, th- then the one who went left has a better chance of getting away. Evolutionarily, this could be selected for, and people could develop this sense naturally and unconsciously. So not all ESP has to be a conscious and intentional uh, activity. It can happen unconsciously as well. And wait, wasn't there some crazy study Dr. Daryl Bem did as well related to porn. Oh, yes. You know, and actually, um, after he did these studies, he appeared on the Colbert Report uh, back in 2011, and the segment was called Time Traveling Porn. (laughs) And you can see this video around the web from the Colbert Report. Um, But what he did is, you know, he was working with students at Cornell University. And so he had 100 students, and he did this experiment where he created a computer program where 
there would be two uh, curtain. It would look like there were two curtains on the screen. And behind one of them would be a photograph. And behind the other one, there would be no photograph. It would just be a blank screen. And he asked people to guess which one would have the photograph behind it. Well, he found that people would tend to choose the one that had the photograph behind it more than you would expect by chance. That's interesting because it shows that they must have some precognition. But what he also found is that the types of photographs he, he used made a big difference. He would use some photographs that were very attractive to people, you know, very, very colorful and joyful, smiling faces. And people would be attracted to those, and they would they would pick those even though they couldn't see them. He would found they would pick those more than ones that they that were ugly or disturbing. Uh, it's what it's a characteristic we call avoidance. People tend to avoid things that upset them or or, or make them angry, and they tend to be attracted to things that are more beautiful. So just to repeat, because I know when when I took this class, I'm like. I had to hear this a few times. There's one. There's a screen. One has a photo. One doesn't. And the goal is to pick the one with the photo, precognitively. And the ones that had photos, people would want to see beautiful photos. They picked that photo. They picked the one with a photo beyond the odds of chance more than they did one that had a photo they would not want to see. Is that correct? Right. So if there was, for example, if there was an ugly picture, like a snarl, some, something that like a snarling dog or a scary spider or something behind the curtain, they would avoid it and they would pick the blank screen. Whereas if, if it was a nice photo, you know, rainbows and unicorns or something, right? <laughs> they would pick the rainbows and unicorns rather than the blank more often. And what we were starting out talking about was that what he found that when he used pornographic images, remember, these are college students, 100 Cornell college students. He found when he used pornographic uh, images that were related to their, their gender and their preferences, that he found that they would be more attracted to those even than the pretty pictures. So the ones that stirred the strongest emotions were what people found more, more easily and more uh, consistently then they would choose a blank screen. One little thing I'm just going to share that I think is fun because this maybe helps people also just learn how to think about things was I remember in your class with each experiment, we had to also say what we liked about the experiment and then something we thought they could do better. And I remember saying with the porn, what they did not ask is where people were in their personal lives. If someone just walked in on their girlfriend, like sleeping with their best friend, maybe the last thing they would want to see is porn, for example. I just thought that was interesting. I doubt that probably really affected the statistics, but it'd be interesting to know, were people single? Because someone who just met someone they're crazy about versus someone who got broken up with the night before might have a different emotional reaction to seeing uh, porn, you know? So that oh, was just... Oh, definitely. Yeah. There are so many factors we could look at. The, the, what's interesting about this is, you know, I told you we've this, we started studying this in a lab back in 1930, so it's been 85 or so years. That's still really young for a science. Not to mention, there aren't a lot of people doing research in these areas. We don't have a great number of trained researchers who can do studies there are so there's so much to learn. There are so many different factors that could be involved. We're trying to pull out ones that we think are significant, and, but there, that's why there are so many opportunities for new ideas, like what you mentioned, Liz. You know, the idea that you know not just their gender and what we're showing them and what their se sexual preferences are, but also what is their current state of mind and how can that have an impact on things. 
That's so important in so many of our studies, because really what we study in parapsychology is people and how people are responding to the world and how the world is responding to us. Now, I have a question. I can't remember the details of this, but I know you mentioned that in these studies, the main conclusion of the class was that time and distance seem pretty irrelevant for getting ESP information, which is so different than if we weren't on this app talking and you were trying to talk to me, we couldn't hear each other. That's distance. If you ask a question, I answer it three days later, that's not really going to work. So am I right? Did they do studies testing this these abilities where someone went into outer space? Like what's the most extreme distance study done and what's the most extreme time done? Because obviously we can't study like 300 years in terms of time because none of us are still here, at least in this body. And yeah, so I guess, yeah, the extreme ends of both in terms of time and distance. That's a good question. And I'll I'll answer it to the best of my knowledge right now. (laughs) So they did do some experiments like the ESP cards that they were working with originally. Um, They were trying to do all, like, as I I said, they did it from different distances of about 300 yards, 500 yards. But they also did some tests with remote viewing from California to Italy. And they were able to compare the results from California to Italy. That's a very significant distance. I'm not sure how far it is. Probably about, oh, I'd say 10,000 kilometers or more. I'm not really sure. But that's a pretty significant distance to say, hey, we were getting comparable results with this. Now, we don't know if that was from telepathy or clairvoyance or even precognition, it could have been. But there was definitely some, there was no, didn't seem to be a distance limitation there. There was also a study done with an astronaut, Edgar Mitchell who was very interested in the work that was being done at the lab at Duke University back in the 1960s. And what Edgar Mitchell was was orbiting the Earth. And they did an ESP card test with Edgar Mitchell orbiting the Earth and at the Duke University labs at the same time. And they did find that there seemed to be some correlation there as well. So that's a longer distance. But, you know, really one case like that with an astronaut orbiting the Earth, that's not really enough (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to provide evidence. That's just, that could be done by chance. But the studies that were done from California to Italy are some of the longest distance studies I know. Now, a few years ago, probably about five years ago in 2016 or so, I was working with a crew in Italy as well. And they had people who were trained to go out of body. And in my lab, I have a, what's called a bioenergy lab. We detect photons, light from people. And what they were doing is trying to send people from Italy out of body into my light lab to see if we would detect light when they were traveling out of body. Now, this was, again, 8,000 kilometers we're talking about here. It's a long distance. And we did find evidence that when they were traveling out of their body and trying to enter the lab, we saw changes in the amount of light in the room. Now, I can go into a lot more detail about this, but it, it, it is just an accommoda- accommodation of the idea that distance doesn't seem to be limiting factor. Now, when we get into time, that's kind of another, another animal. And I know that most of the time studies that have been done have been done, like Daryl Bems, over just a few seconds. Uh, there are people who have made predictions about things in the future, but it's really difficult to nail that down in a laboratory sense. 
So I'm going to kind of punt on the time time story for now, just because I can't give you a specific example. Well, in physics, you know, the split particle experiment. I don't know if you want to explain that, but that was one of the first things I read when I began studying all this that allowed me to think, okay, I can go further. I can go further. There is something here that's inexplicable. And I know you talked about it. I took a class, was it physics and parapsychology? So I, I can't, I'm blanking on the name of the class, but again, it was a wonderful class. Sorry, I forgot the exact name, but I know you talked about the split particle experiment. So maybe you can explain that to our listeners and then maybe one other experiment based on physics that might not be so easily Googleable. The topic you're you're discussing there is what we call quantum entanglement. Quantum entanglement is a physics phenomenon. And it's it's been around they've they've discovered it back in the 1930s and it continues to be a mystery for theoretical physicists. What happens is if you take a particle, a very small particle, like for example, a, a photon or an electron, and you split it in half, they have certain mechanisms that you can split them in half, but you still have two photons that are separated now from each other. They can separate these a, a great distance. And they find that even though they're separated, it doesn't happen all the time. But certain, but it, they often become entangled, which means they still act as if they are connected in one particle. So when you measure one of them, the other one immediately adapts and it takes the opposite measurement as if they are two halves of one whole. This is something that's, that's true in physics. And if you want to look it up in detail, you can learn about entanglement in detail. But they found that when they separate these, it seems to occur instantaneously, which means it seems to be faster than the speed of light. They have done these experiments just a few meters from each other. And when you're talking about photons, a few meters is a big, a big distance. But they've also taken them hundreds of miles from each other. And just within the last couple years, uh, there was a Chinese experiment where they entangled photons on the Earth with photons that were circling in orbit around the Earth in the space space station, and they saw them continue to act as if they were one particle, instantaneously react to one another. This is physics. There's no parapsychology involved here. That's straight physics. But it's weird because these shouldn't act like they're the same, and the, and the information should not travel quicker than the speed of light. And as you said, that's physics, not parapsychology. I think one day a lot of the stuff we're calling parapsychology is going to move into physics and going to become more and more normal, which is a whole other discussion I will want to touch upon in this podcast, but maybe we can talk about these experiments first, but definitely want to go eventually touch upon all, why parapsychology ends up so dismissed. Right. So you want me to continue with entanglement a minute? Oh, yes. Yes, sure. Okay. So as you said, yes, this is physics, but what does that have to do with parapsychology? Well, Dean Radin, who has written a number of books in the field of parapsychology, did a study a few years ago uh, where he was trying to, these he was trying to see if uh, people could affect these quantum activities. Besides entanglement, there's another phenomenon we call the observer effect in physics. It's in quantum physics. This is where a photon being shot through a little a little screen with two slits in it will sometimes act like a particle and sometimes act like a wave. We have to consider it this way. 
if you have little, if a particle, a photon is little balls and you shoot them through a slit, they should hit a screen on the other side. If it goes straight through, it should kind of look like you get two lines on the other side. But if they're waves, which light sometimes acts like a wave, it wouldn't look like two lines, but they would actually be like interference patterns. You get a whole bunch of lines on the screen. It's just as if you drop a stone in a pond and you get ripples and circles that go out. If you drop two stones in a pond at the same time, the ripples and the circles that come out from them are going to overlap. And in some places, they're going to cancel each other out. In other places, you're going to get a larger peak between them. Well, this is what we measure with light. So the observer effect is that when light goes through these double slits, when you shoot a single photon through these double slits, it will act like a wave. And you'll see this interference pattern. But as soon as you put an observation device to see which slit is the photon going through, it starts to act like a particle. Just the act of observing the photon changes its behavior from being a wave phenomena to a particle phenomena. So this means our intention to observe can have an impact on the outside world. This is again, physics. What Dean did is he did this experiment and instead of putting a little device to watch where the photon was going through, he had meditators project their consciousness into the, the, into the observations and they would use their consciousness to observe which slit it went through. He found that without having a physical observer, just the intention of observing, the visualization of observing had the same impact as if there was a physical observer there. This is important to parapsychology because it shows that our intention and consciousness, even if it's not physically oriented, can have an effect on the world. And it's important to physics because they don't understand why this happened. And this adds information from parapsychology experiments. It adds information to the world of physics. Really, really excellent and a phenomenal study. Club Care is a charity organization founded by Emma Justice after the loss of her father, David Justice, to glioblastoma. Club Care is dedicated to supporting children and families dealing with cancer. They strive to create joyful moments through meaningful projects impacting individual families, as well as larger oncology communities. Funding for all projects is raised through philanthropic donations. Go to makingheadway.org backslash programs for a complete list of programs and activities. You ever wonder what mediums do with their free time? How about a 30-something-year-old gay medium living in New York City? Well, in this podcast, you're about to find out. Welcome to Ghost Daddy, a place where LGBTQ plus spiritual people and our cis-hetero allies, of course, have a place to just be themselves and spread their wisdom. This is the new face of spirituality. None of that love and light, toxic positivity crap. So pour yourself a vodka soda, <laughs> open up your mind, and start listening. You can listen to the Ghost Daddy podcast anywhere where you listen to podcasts. Hi. 
Ready to embody that next level calm and confidence? It's time to activate that part of your subconscious. Get the self-paced 11-minute-a-day program by me, author of Confidence Introvert and Certified Subconscious Reprogrammer. Go to stephanietoma.com slash confidence boost. Use code WTF50 for $50 off. I actually hadn't known about that part of it that Dean Radin did. That's, I never quite know what to say when we talk about the split particle (laughs) experiment because it's so mind blowing. I'm just like, yep, apparently, apparently this is what physicists, and these are like what people would call quote unquote normal physicists. This was done by Einstein, John Wheeler, all the ones that the biggest skeptic of skeptics would consider the best scientists in the world. I just have nothing to say when we talk about this because it's just, I mean, no one knows. It's just so mind-blowing. Well, and because, you know, Liz, because people don't understand uh, this quantum physics and because we don't really understand the mechanisms behind the psi phenomena that we've been describing, people tend to say, oh, well, they seem to work the same. ESP and psi must work just like quantum physics. But we don't know that for sure. <laughs> you know, we, we, we take things, we have a tendency as human beings have a tendency to um, take things they don't understand and say, well, they look like they're the same thing because we don't understand it. But we have not made a direct connection. We can sometimes learn from quantum physics and quantum physics can apparently learn from parapsychology as well. But we can't say that they work the same way. So I cannot say that there is as uh, ev- strong evidence that parapsychology or psi works just like quantum physics does. But it is interesting to think about, and to, it does direct our studies in the future. And I think where it, I could say it overlaps, although I'm not a trained scientist or even officially trained parapsychologist, is the world is just so much weirder than we perceive with our senses. That's what I kind of leave it as, that our consciousness behaves in ways we just, we can't understand. Right. Well, there's, there's so much of a mystery, which is why we're, we're, we're not running out of things to study. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> now, you said the light photons, extra light photons showed up when people were out of body. You're probably not going to know this, but do you, what do you think? Do you think that means that our discarnate consciousness is equivalent to light photons, and that is the out-of-body consciousness there that you were reading? Or do you think we influence protons, light protons, sorry, light photons, my apologies, light photons that are already there? Which would you guess you were reading? That's a really good question. And when we when we start to think about what's going on in our photon lab, essentially, we all have a natural emission of light in the ultraviolet range, even in extremely, absolutely dark rooms. And that's what we have at the Rhine. We have what we call a double dark room. Even in these absolutely dark rooms, uh, plants, animals, people, even single cells emit light in the ultraviolet range. And again, this is not parapsychology. This is biology. These are called ultra-weak photon emissions, and they come from organic matter. What we're doing in our lab is we're trying to see if people who are in states of extreme focus will intentionally or unintentionally produce more light around them. 
And we find that certain people do induce more light during these periods of activity versus a baseline that we take. Now, are they creating this light? Is it coming from inside their cells? Is it being produced? Or are they recruiting it from the environment around them? And is it causing more light to occur? That's a question that even biologists aren't able to answer right now related to this light. When they look at, the, at, at it, they have different theoretical explanations, but there's no very clear definition of where this light is coming from in the cells, in the body. So a question related to out-of-body experiences, when someone is projecting their consciousness into our lab and we see changes in light within the lab, does that mean that they are recruiting the light that is around or are they producing light? Is there something about their experience of projecting their spirit or their consciousness to a new location? Does it mean that something has left their body and come into our lab and it's glowing? That's what it seems like it's saying. It seems that we're saying that there's some sort of light that we carry within us and that we're able to project it to another location. But only people who are very well-trained and very practiced at this seem to be able to perform that. Does It could happen spontaneously, unconsciously and spontaneously. Uh, and it may happen that way. But our, our uh, experiments have been limited in that area so far. Again, some of the stuff I just stumble over my words a little because it's all, it's just so weird. And so like, you don't really know what to say. This just goes against, in so many ways, kind of how we're taught the world works, at least how I was taught in my secular materialist intellectual upbringing. Right. And, and it's fascinating, you know, which is why we, we continue to look into this because like, how is this happening? Why is it happening? You know, we, now we're observing it. We're seeing it happen on a regular basis to the extent that it happens in different labs. It happens with different people. It happens in different studies. So it seems to be independent of research or independent of equipment. But how is it happening? There's, it's so fascinating to learn how it's happening because it does seem to work differently than most of our science that we know. No one has been able to answer those questions yet, right? We're still guessing. Yeah, we're still trying. <laughs> I want to ask, I can't remember if this was in a class or if this was in our Rhine discussion group, but there were some studies that plants have consciousness. There were some studies with a man named Cleve Baxter where he was looking into, the, he, he was doing some tests with lie detectors and he decided, he thought he had a lie detector system at home and he was trying to work with it and learn more about it. And he thought, well, I wonder what would happen if I connected it up to my plants. Just out of the blue, crazy idea he had back in the 1960s. And so he connected the sensors up to his plants. And he seemed to see that the plants were giving electrical signals. With this, a lie detector, essentially, it detects very, very small electrical signal. And they use it on the body to detect skin conductance. They use it to uh, detect temperature changes. And just very, very small electrical changes that you might find. And by connecting them up to the plants, he was able to measure very small changes in the electrical system within the plants. While they're organic systems, there is obviously going to be some electrical flow between the cells. Information travels through electricity as well. Well, he found that whenever the plants seemed to be disturbed in some way, they would respond. Sometimes if as he was about to water them, they would all of a sudden start to put off additional electrical activity. 
Let me just clarify about to water them, not when he did, because it would make sense maybe if water is going in that the cells would. But this was before, like the way a dog responds when it sees you carrying its food. In anticipation. Yes. It was as if it were anticipating what was going to happen. And so then, then they also did some studies where they would cut leaves of the plant or take leaves off of it and it would respond. But what was even more interesting is that if he had multiple plants together in one environment, had sensors on one and cut leaves on another plant, he would see reactions as if there was a connection between the plants, as if there was something that was, that was uh, they were acting as if they were responding to something that was happening to another plant. So this, this is very interesting because we talk about plants in this way. What about people? <laughs> I mean, I have to imagine people also respond in this way. And whether it happens from their um, consciously or we have just natural connections with each other. And we naturally respond to what's going on with other people. Sometimes it happens to the point that even if we don't know it's occurring and it's happening at a distance, you know, there are many stories from back in during World War One and World War Two, where people would know that their loved one was injured in the war, even though they were hundreds or thousands of miles away from them. And these con- types of connections are what these plant studies tend to emphasize. Hey, if it happens with plants, can we also see this same type of thing with people? Well, we know people feel empathy when they hear a story, but... Or if you see your best friends crying, or even a stranger, when you see a stranger sad, most people feel something. But you're saying that even if we don't experience someone's pain with one of our senses, like our twin sister, well, I guess twin is kind of, that's a whole other type of experiment. But so our sister breaks her leg in Paris, and you're in New York, you might feel something at that moment. Yes, and there are many stories of this. In fact, I do have twins in my family. <laughs> I have a, my brother and sister are twins, and they have sympathetic connections all the time. I've been at my sister's house, and my brother walks in, who she hasn't seen in many months. And he'll he'll say, how's your back doing today? And she'll say, oh, it's killing me. And he'll go, yeah, mine too. As if they, they've known this all along. <laughs> they just have this, connect, seem to have this uh constant connection to each other where they know how each other are doing. What's the craziest story you've seen between your siblings who are twins? Well, uh, well, I do know that whenever they were in school together, the teacher separated and made them sit on opposite sides of the room because they'd get the same answers on all the tests. <laughs> um, and eventually it got to the point that they were convinced that they were cheating and they, were, they weren't cheating together. And they had to even separate them into different classes and give them different tests altogether. So this is some of the things that they had to do. I mean, craziest story. After a certain point, it becomes so natural, it doesn't even register as crazy anymore. They just, it's very apparent that they have a connection together and they know what's going on with the other. Um, but it's not only its not only the twins that this happens to, but we talk about bonded pairs in parapsychology. We do a number of studies where we take people who know each other really well, whether they be a mother and daughter or siblings or very close friends or, or lovers, and we do studies with them to see what type of connection they have together. And we find that bonded pairs tend to react 
much be- we get much better results working with bonded pairs in ESP experiments than just strangers who don't know each other. So these connections that we feel, these intimate uh, connections we feel with each other, these relationships we develop are more than just physical, more than just from our common experiences. They're, they also seem to reflect a larger connection. And from my perspective, it's not only between bonded pairs. We see it with bonded pairs, but we're all connected. All of us have connected. We are all part of a single consciousness. We're all part of a single, we know each other in ways that we can't even describe, in ways that we don't even know, which is why it's important for us to continue to work on our own, develop our own abilities to feel compassion and to recognize that we are all one and all together in this world. That gives me such mixed feelings. I'm like, ah, oh, that's great with some people. Then I'm like, oh, does Trump have to be part of that? Or like, can we kick certain <laughs> ones out of that? I don't want to be bonded to certain people. Yeah, you have but, to work more on your compassion, Liz, I guess. <laughs> uh, certain people, I'm reasonably compassionate, but I'll hear, I'm, yeah, let's send love to Trump or people like that. I'm like, oh God, no, I, I'm not quite that. I, I'm still a parapsychologist. <laughs> approach like scientific i'm not a parapsychologist i still take a scientific approach i'm not that emotionally spiritually advanced myself yet but that <laughs> we'll talk about that on sentiment. another in another interview we'll discuss that yes <laughs> yes that that is another topic now all that being said that i was actually in all honesty very a very beautiful thought i want to ask you about experiments i have a question this is two-part what is the most remarkable experiment you think you've studied? And what is the most remarkable, shocking experience you've had while conducting your own experiments or ones that you participated in? So I have to say the study, the phenomena I saw that had the most impact on me. I was It was right after I started working at the Rhine and doing some studies in the Rhine. I was sitting in the library with 11 other researchers, and one of them had uh, brought in a woman from Canada. Her name is Shirley Black. And Shirley has had near-death experiences in the past. And as a result of her near-death experiences, she was reporting that there were objects that were moving around her. She was having an effect on objects in her house, and it was disturbing to her. It seemed like things would fall off the wall when she got upset that the light bulbs would blow out. And it got to a point that she started to worry that her husband or herself were going to be injured by different objects that were moving around in her house. Now, we never studied to see if this was actually happening, but Shirley wasn't so interested in proving that it was happening. She wanted it to stop. (laughs) And so what she wanted to do was learn how to control it a bit. She threw some advice. She was in order to control it. If she was able to control it, she may be able to stop the unconscious activity from happening and causing these other things to move and fall. And so she started to practice what we call psychokinesis, mind-matter interaction. She took a piece of aluminum foil and created what we call a psi wheel. Wait, I'm just going to jump in really quickly. An example of that would be like spoon bending. Like if your psychokinesis is the theory that your mind can have an effect on material objects, again, bending spoons with your mind. Just And if anyone saw that old movie, Carrie... That's apparently what she would do, affect. 
I mean, I think that's an extreme. It's probably never realistically like that. But just, yeah, I think some people might not exactly know what we're talking about until I clarified that. So Thank you. So what Shirley did is she took, um, she created what we call a side wheel. You just take a piece of aluminum foil and you put it on top of a pin and you create like a little pinwheel. It'll spin really easily, very little friction. And um, if you blow on it a little bit, it'll spin. Well, we recognize that she, what she did is she tried to train herself to move it and try to move it on command she, without touching it. And she had videos of herself doing this. Well, there was a question on whether it was really happening or not, or whether it was some sort of trick, because, you know, she was doing it in Canada and we were in North Carolina. So one of the researchers brought her down and we had her, she sat down with this piece of equipment and sealed it inside of a jar so that no wind could affect it. And sat next to it and put her hand next to it, and it started spinning in a room with 11 researchers sitting there. It started spinning. Well, of course, I was just immediately flabbergasted by what was going on, but my next thought was, well, is this really happening or is this a trick? So I asked her, hey, can you stop it? And she took her hand away and it stopped spinning. And I said, can you spin it the other way? She put her finger next to it and started moving her finger in the opposite direction, and it started moving in the opposite direction. This was from outside of a jar. Her fingers and her hands were outside of the jar. So this, this was just, when you see psychokinesis, when you see this intentional movement of objects without touching them occur, it really changes your whole mindset and your whole worldview at that point. It's like, oh, this actually happens. But of course, we couldn't take it just out of, at our word or with this point. So we did further experiments and further studies, detailed studies with our own equipment in different ways, in different environments. And she still was able to affect these objects and continue to have them move whenever she wanted them to. Our next step with this is trying to figure out what's happening. How is this happening? Can I ask one quick question before you go forward? Had you said originally she was moving it while she was in Canada and you guys were in North Carolina? She'd focus on it at certain times and move a little bit. Did I misunderstand that? No, no, no. We This wasn't something we were doing from a distance. Oh, okay. Okay. She had come to North Carolina and we were practicing this in so North Carolina. So it was Carolina. only in North Carolina. Okay. I thought yes. there was one part where you said maybe at first it would move a little bit while she was. Okay. No, we, we didn't even try to do it from a distance originally like that. We did it with her in the room. But as I said, when you see this happen in front of you <laughs> in a room with 11 researchers, all very carefully observing and watching and trying to understand what might be going on, what might not and it still occurs, our goal is to try to make it go away because we might be fooling ourselves. But when we couldn't make it go away, we had to accept that this was actually happening. So that's one of the things that really kind of changed my perspective and made me think I need to start looking at this in a lot more detail um, because I was never really interested in psychokinesis or mind-matter interaction before that. But it got, it became, because I had someone doing it consistently, it was very interesting to, to continue to follow up with. I've had other examples of psychokinesis as well um, that have brought me in, brought, really brought me closer to, the, to that phenomena and learning more about it. The work we're doing in our light lab is something else that I'm very, that it just is, every time it happens, it surprises me and fascinates me. <laughs> <laughs> because I don't know why it's happening. Um, and I, I, I really want to understand it. So as I said, we have, we're measuring ultra-weak photon emissions, ultra, ultraviolet light coming from organic matter. 
Some people call it biophotons. We have an extremely dark room, and we're using a, phys- a piece of equipment that's used in physics called a photomultiplier tube. It can measure a single photon of ultraviolet light every half, every second, so or every half second. So we get two photons a second is the minimum it can measure. Really, really sensitive because a photon is like no light. It's like one particle of light. It doesn't become visible until you get into the hundreds of thousands of photons at a time. What we find when people go into the lab, we'll see um, any, if the, ro- if the room's empty, the baseline for the equipment is about three to five photons a second. If I bring a person in, that number jumps up to about 12 to 20 photons a second because we have a natural glow about us. Not the aura, that's something different but we do have this natural glow in the ultraviolet range. And what we do is we bring in people who say they're healers, they're meditators, or they're um, martial artists, actually. And we ask them, during our act, after we get a nice baseline, do your activity, do your healing, do your meditation, your martial arts form, and we look for changes. With about 90% of the people, I don't see anything. I just continue to see the baseline. But with about 10%, I'll see changes from this baseline of about 12 to 20 photons a second, which is a normal glow. It'll jump up to 80, which is four times the baseline. That's very large. But in many cases, it jumps into the hundreds, into the thousands, and even into the hundreds of thousands of photons a second. When this is occurring, our whole the question, there's obviously something going on in there. And we don't need statistics to be able to tell that, hey, this is really different. There's something really remarkable happening. Now, why do we care? This is light. So light is being produced. Well, if you talk to healers, you talk to meditators, you talk to martial artists, healers talk about energy blockages in the body and moving energies through the body. Meditators talk about kundalini energy rising through the body. And uh, martial artists talk about chi, life force energy, chi or ki, and the life force energy. But if you talk to a physicist, they say, look, there's potential energy and kinetic energy. It isn't neither of those. So I don't know what you're talking about, but it's not energy. But what we are measuring is light. Light is an electromagnetic form of energy. It's recognized by physics. And we're using standard physics equipment to measure this light. And we're seeing it's being expressed or it's present when these people are describing feeling energy. So perhaps... These things, when healers are describing energy blockages and moving energy, maybe they're doing it with light. And perhaps when martial artists are talking about chi, the energy they're feeling is detectable as light. And so this is one of the most interesting, well, of course, it's, it's a study I'm working on now. So it's one of the most interesting things that I've found within the field. And it's something that continues to fascinate me and I really want to learn more about. Both those stories are just phenomenal. Like, again, I stumble over my words every time I speak when I hear th- stories as remarkable as both of those, because it's just, yeah, what do you even make of those? It's absolutely, I think it's to just the most profound understanding, just the tip of the iceberg, the most profound understanding of how our consciousness works, how the world works. It's just get chills. To actually get to be part of that and witness that must be incredible. I've done literally thousands of trials within our lab. And as I said, many of them I get no results. But every time that I see these photon numbers jump to a really high level, you said you get chills. I do too. 
And I've seen it thousands. It's just like, wow, it's happening again. I can't make it go away. This is the thing. We, if, we can't, if we can't make it go away, it's happening. We have to try to understand it more in order to really, because any, I, I guess I'm just curious, you know, if I see something that's happening and I don't understand it, I want to try to understand why it's happening. One question I have is that you said certain people, uh, well, it was something I believe you said 10% had this astronomical effect while most of us don't. Did those people have anything in common? Did they do spiritual work? Is there something they have that most of us don't? So normally, um, you know, when I was originally working in the lab, it was pretty much anybody who came in, we tried to run them through the lab and did some things with them. But I've, I've, because uh, my time has gotten a little bit more limited, <laughs> I tend to uh, select people who I believe who might be able to have an effect, people who have studied and really worked at it and uh, practiced a bit. It's not consistent, though. There are some people who are who have I don't test to see people are if people are actually healers to see if they're successful in the healing attempts. But there are some people who have uh, healing practices that are really well known, are really good at it, and have had a lot of success with people who have said who said they've been uh, helped by their work. And I'll have them come in my lab and I get nothing. <laughs> Others I get. I oftentimes get results. Also, we've had people come in and I have control people. People come in for controls just to say, just do this stuff and move your hands around like you might be doing something. And I get results from them. It's as if, so it's not always someone who's trained, someone who's practiced. It seems to, I haven't been able to determine exactly what it is that's giving us the results and what's not. It does seem to be related to a focus though, the ability to focus clearly. This is why meditators, they focus, people who've been doing meditation for a long time, they have a very strong focus. People who do martial arts, they have a strong focus as well, and they're able to maintain focus for longer periods of time. So these are the types of people that we sometimes find do better or produce more results in the lab than uh, people who don't have some sort of mental training or discipline. We just, in this conversation, touched upon about this tiny percent of all the studies I've learned. And it, there's just so much and it seems so valid. And now the not fun question, what is going on with mainstream science? I mean, I mean, I believe mainstream science. I follow traditional modern medicine. I Science is brilliant. What is going on that they are dismissing all of this with so much scorn? They're not even saying we don't know what this can conclude. They say it doesn't happen. I just am going to share with my listeners because I guess I have so much trust in science. Every time I read science says this is all bullshit. Not every time, but I'll have my days where I'm like, oh God, I'm just not seeing something. And I'll, my grief will get worse that day. And I'll think I've made up the whole thing, even though it goes away because the everything I've seen is astronomical. But I remember reading an article by a skeptic about an event actually done at the Rhine and one of the activities was spoon bending. And they just very snidely were writing about how, just as an example of what bullshit the event was, was there was even spoon bending. And next line, you, I'm sure and will not be shocked to hear was, well, we didn't try it. We knew it was bullshit. But and as anyone who's read my book knows, I tried spoon bending, and I was able to do it. And then I did another event, where I was the only one in a group of mediums, only one not able to do it, but they could bend the same spoons. I couldn't. So we know there wasn't a trick and they were all women about the same size and strength as me. And that's one thing I always go to when I try to think of the science of skeptics is where they say, I didn't read it. 
but I know it's not true. I didn't try it. But at this point, with the level of evidence and strength, why are they just so scornful and dismissive? There's a, no. I, I, it's hard for me to argue from a skeptical perspective. I'm a scientist. I'm skeptical. I told you anything we see, we try to make it go away <laughs> because that's a. I mean, because that's a natural skeptical approach to these sorts of phenomena. We don't believe that we're actually getting it right, but it does introduce. It, it, it throws a monkey wrench into the works of a physicalist model of the world. That doesn't mean that uh, the world is not physical and that physical laws don't hold. It means that we might not know everything and that there's more to learn and that there may be things that are influencing the world that we don't understand yet. We talked about quantum physics and we discussed the observer effect and we discussed entangled particles. Physicists don't know how these work. And it turns out that when you talk to theoretical physicists, they are often much more likely to accept the work we do in parapsychology because they understand that there are a lot of unknowns, that we are finding phenomena we can't describe. Let's look and see if the science is being done well before we take the next steps and deny it. But there are many people who are casually scientific observers, people who are interested in science, enthusiasts about science. And they're often looking at things from a very critical perspective because they're interested in learning more about what the world is actually like. There, For a number of years, there was a group that was created called PSYCOP, which promoted the idea that all of parapsychology was fake and that none of the researchers knew what they were doing and they were all making mistakes. But they weren't actually, most of, most of the time, the people who are being critics weren't actually reading the research articles. They weren't looking at the science. They were basing it on the fact that if parapsychology is real, all of the things I believe are wrong. But that's not true. You know, if parapsychology is real, it can extend our knowledge of the world, extend our knowledge of how, how physics works, how we connect with each other, what we know in our experiences of the world. But that doesn't mean that you have to just throw away everything we know and that rockets won't go to the moon anymore. And, you know, we can't uh, build, build great trains and, you know, think, all of those things and engine, feats of engineering still hold. But there's more to learn. And as we learn more, we may learn that there's different ways, just like in sciences, as we learn more about physics and engineering and biology, we develop better fuel sources and different fuel sources. We start to learn more about medicine and how to treat people. We start to even develop uh, better ways to train the physical body and athletes get stronger and better and bigger over time. Parapsychology and what we've learned within this field can add to this. It doesn't have to be rejected just because it doesn't fit with the current model. These things are happening. And for the people in the sciences who are paying attention to the research and reading the research, they tend to agree that it's happening. And the question then is, how do we describe it or how do we explain it? And that's what we're working on now. So if you had a billion dollars, what would be your dream <laughs> experiment to do? Because I know always when I ask questions, did you guys do this in parapsychology? Almost always there's a budget limit to how much can be done. So you have, let's say you have limitless funds to do 
whatever you want. What would be your dream experiment? My major interest is in the connections between people and how we're connected to each other because it's just, it's so much a part of our daily lives and it influences so much about how we uh, interact with each other and how we view other other parts of the wor- world. And specifically, I've always been interested in healing, different healing techniques, but also how healing works. There's a lot of people who are are treating people outside of the traditional Western medicine. I have no problem with traditional Western medicine, none. Uh, I know that there are profit-driven motives in some cases. That's not what we're talking about here. But there are people working outside of uh, traditional Western medicine who are having significant effects and helping people a great deal. I'd like to find ways to validate people who are actually helping versus people who are maybe think they're helping but aren't. To be able to validate healing is effective. To be able to create studies where we can measure it. To determine what is going on when a healer makes a connection with a patient or with another person. And how does that connection facilitate healing occurring within a person? Because for me, it's about enjoying our lives and really being comfortable in lives. Healing occurs on so many different levels. It occurs on a physical level, but there's also emotional healing and there's spiritual healing. There's so many different ways that we can bring comfort to each other and to other people. And as we learn more about what, how parapsychology might be able to contribute, this is where I would really like to focus my time and my energy. And actually, I am focusing my time and energy there. It would be great to have more resources to do it, though. Any billionaires listening to this podcast, <laughs> send some money to John um, and me. Give me a call. I'll talk yeah. to you. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take some of that, too. Come advertise on this podcast if you have a billion dollars to play with. Um, have you witnessed any healing that was really remarkable? Uh, well, y- yes, quite often, actually. But it's, it's always a question of what was the what caused it to occur. Right. We we have a team that meets at the Rhine on a regular basis, and we've been actually meeting together for 10 years consistently every week. When we started, we were working, we were we were trying to learn a technique together and develop our skills and our familiarity with each other. And we got to a certain point where we felt like, okay, I think we can start to work with a person now. But we were very shy and hesitant to do anything like that. So one of the team members said, you know, I've had sciatica. For like years, I used to dance and now I can't dance anymore. I have trouble walking. It's gotten so bad that I can't even sleep because my sciatica is so bad whenever I lay down at night. And maybe you guys can help me. And so our team got, a, we had a, have a table that we had him uh, lay down on and we sat around him and we practiced our mechanism, our technique together. And he hasn't had a problem with that since. It's been nine years. It went away. The next day, it was gone. Did we do that? I don't know. Did he do that himself? I don't know. I don't know how it works. I'm interested in learning more about how it works. But it's phenomenal that he found relief. And he has, I mean, the man's 90 years old now, and he hasn't had sciatica in 10 years. That's a pretty, it's a pretty amazing change. And I've, that's just one example of things that I've seen related to this this type of work. Is it like Reiki where you put hands over the person or you send them healing thoughts? What do you 
do? There are so many different healing techniques. And I actually have a course that I teach on um, on different, he- it's called PK and healing and energy healing. And it goes through some of the different methods that people use. Um, this one in particular is what we learned is called, it's called hands-on healing, but it doesn't even involve touching. You don't use your hands in any way. Um, it was developed by Bill Bankston, and he shared the technique with us, and we've been practicing it for a long time. But all of us who are part of this group have come from different backgrounds and different healing approaches. Some people had no experience. Other people did do Reiki. Other people do healing touch. Uh, many different approaches. Some people do very religious-based healing. But we all learned this one technique. The technique doesn't seem to be what's important. It seems to be the connection that people make and the need. If someone has a need for healing and the healers are able to share and offer their assistance, it doesn't matter what technique they're doing. It really doesn't. They don't have to touch them. It's not like, you know, a mechanic fixing a car where you have to go in and fiddle with the pieces. It's just offering offering some opportunity for healing, whatever you can offer to someone who has a need and it can have an effect it doesn't have to be within a healing group you can do this every day you know mothers do this when their child's crying and go over and touch them on the back they're just sharing they're not trying to send healing they're just sharing a connection with their child this is this is what i consider just an example of healing this has just been a wonderful conversation thank you so much first of all are there any final messages or takeaways you'd like to have our listeners here? What I've been saying the whole time is about the connections that we have between each other. And, you know, we've done studies. I didn't even mention the studies that I've done on how people unconsciously influence computers and electronic equipment. Um, We found that just emotions and just feelings can have such a strong influence on inanimate objects like computers and networks. Imagine the effects we're having on each other. Our emotions our feelings, not just the way other people see us or what we, how we respond to people, but just having these feelings can have an impact on other people. So it's important to, be, to really be cautious of what we think and how we are in the world. Are you an advocate, a change maker, a healer, or an expander? Does your business have an important story to tell? A story agency can help you craft and share your business's story with the right audience. A story is a public relations and communications firm that develops thoughtful strategies, content, and powerful partnerships for those who are making a positive social impact, sparking reform, and promoting well-being. Founded by Allison Mahoney, an American lawyer who has spent the past decade advocating on behalf of survivors of social injustices, crimes, and civil rights violations, a story agency is not your average PR firm. Reach out to a story agency today at hello at a story, E-S-T-O-R-I-E agency.com or visit www.astoryagency.com and mention w. TF just happened in the subject line to receive a free 30-minute consultation. And now we're going to pause for a second for the question of the week. 
Allison asks, in all your research, when were you the most shocked? Okay, good question. So in the beginning, I was in this constant state of shock. Everything I was reading, every study I read or class I took, when I started seeing mediums give group readings, when I got private readings, it was like this roller coaster of shock and thrill and then terror, like, oh my God, I'm about to find the catch and this is all going to be bullshit. And it was just this very intense emotional experience, probably for about a year and a half, two years. And the shock started to go away most of the time. And I definitely miss it, but it's still there. It's just not as constant. I'll be just walking along and suddenly think, holy fuck, there's actually a bunch of evidence that seems to say there most likely is an afterlife. Or I'll be hanging out with one of my medium friends and they'll tell me a story. Or I'll be watching them give group readings and suddenly those chills and shock will hit me again. Or during one of my own readings. And it'll happen sometimes when I'm reading a study. Or hearing about some new data or amazing experience. So those little shocks will just come and hit me again, which is really wonderful. And just this overall moments where I'm just like, wait, like, holy fuck, how? They're really, there actually seems most likely an afterlife. But it's definitely not those chronic shocks that I had in the beginning when I assumed there was zero chance of an afterlife and I started examining all the evidence. If you have a question you want me to answer, send it to hello at wtfjusthappened.net and put question of the week in the subject. I know I usually say first names, but if you want to be completely anonymous, let me know. And feel free to reach out anyway, even if you don't have a question. I can't wait to hear your questions and hear from you. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited to share that my book, What the Fuck Just Happened? A Sciencey Skeptic Explores Grief, Healing, and Evidence of an Afterlife is available now for sale. If you go to wtfjusthappened.net, you can see the link to buy it. I'll also have the link in the podcast show notes. I know many of you want to know how exactly did I come to change my mind about the afterlife? Well, this book is all about the first stages of my exploration into this afterlife evidence to where I'm at today. It starts with the awful part of when I lost my dad, how as a science-minded atheist, I first began to explore if there was any possibility of an afterlife and what and who I found most compelling. I also share some stuff that was not so compelling, such as a very clearly fake psychic medium reading and a pretty ridiculous seance, but that's balanced by some amazing peer-reviewed studies on mediums, medium readings, parapsychologists, and just a whole bunch of what the fucks, including some really inexplicable personal things that happened to me, and some really incredible signs I got from my dad. Despite the topic, it's actually funny, mainly because I'm just 
like such an awkward person. And you also get to learn about all the amazing people and incredible characters I met along the way, as well as more about the research that helped change my mind. And some of the people you learn about have become some of my really good friends and mentors today. So go to WTFJustHappened.net and order it. If you've already read it, please rate and review on Amazon. I cannot tell you how helpful that is. And share with any friends who might be interested. Thank you all. I'm so excited to finally share the full details of this crazy exploration with all of you. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much, John. Where can our listeners find you? The information, I always point people to Ryan.org because that's the Ryan Research Center and it'll pro- you'll find a lot of information. We're also on YouTube and on social media. You can find Ryan Research Center as well. Um, you always look, look me up there and get more information there. There's a lot of information on the research on the Ryan website and there's a great deal of information about our community as well. Liz, thank you for having me here today. Really happy to be here. To get more information on what the fuck just happened, go to wtfjusthappened.net. There you can order my book, What the Fuck Just Happened? A Sciency Skeptic Explores Grief, Healing, and Evidence of an Afterlife. And you can learn all about how I came to conclude that there most likely is an afterlife. You can also learn about the early stages of my grief and the amazing, fascinating people I met along the way. You can also read about how much I harassed them trying to get evidence, see if they were cheating, and see if they were sane. There, you can subscribe to our newsletter. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It makes such a difference, especially for a new podcast like this one. And if any of you have had a crazy what the fuck yourself, have any questions, feedback, or just want to say hi, reach out on either Instagram at WTF underscore just underscore happened underscore or email me at hello at wtfjusthappened.net. And remember, you don't have to draw any final conclusions as you wonder what the fuck just happened.